2: Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts.
3: Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history of little-known fascinating facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We're two
4: guys with too much free time in our hands. My name's Jordan Rontog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And, Jordan, you're going to have to run that at about 1.5 speed. We're talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. You should've, we should have slammed espressos for this show. We are going to be running through so many facts. We're going to crouch down into little tiny balls and spin around really fast and then i'm gonna fall into a pit of spikes because it's the weekend baby because it's because it's a sunday
3: fun day baby sonic turned 30 years old last year you could say that time was the only thing that could catch him he couldn't outrun father time (laughs) yes we love sonic although you know i have to admit i was more of a playstation
4: guy i had a game gear and i distinctly remember I learned about my emotional issues as a child <laughs> while playing, Son- playing Sonic. Holy <laughs> did that game infuriate. I remember throwing my game gear across the room at one point and then being like, oh my God, did I break that? Like my dad's going to kill me. I
3: desperately wanted an N64 as a kid and a, a very well-meaning relative didn't know the difference between N64 and PlayStation and I got a PlayStation so I had to make do with mm. Crash Bandicoot. Um, or they did it on purpose because they saw that I was a sadist whenever I played Goldeneye <laughs> with the remote <laughs> mines in the facility and they probably just didn't want to encourage that and decided to get me a slightly less violent gaming system. But let's move away from our sadistic childhood tendencies now and back to Sonic. And again, Sonic was not a huge part of my life, but when he turned 30, uh, I talk about him as if he was real. When Sonic the character (laughs) turned 30 last summer, just this outpouring of affection from all over the globe really made me reconsider him, the game. And it's funny how, you know, even after all this time, after now a second big budget action movie, I still feel like he's seen as the like flashy underdog, which I mean, I guess he's definitely cooler than Mario, who's a portly Italian plumber, but
4: still. You keep Mario's name out of your <laughs> mouth. <laughs> you hear me? Run talk. Well, you know, you're right. We are going to talk about everything from Sonic's early days as an, a headshot aimed at Mario's <laughs> mustachioed head to Michael Jackson's involvement in the franchise and. And Bill Clinton's involvement. And too. Bill Clinton's involvement. And in, yeah, well, pseudo involvement. Here's everything you didn't know about Sonic the Hedgehog. So you mentioned Mario Brothers. First of all, how dare you? But (laughs) second of all, flashback to the late 80s, early 90s. A nation turns its hopeful eyes to a portly (laughs) Italian plumber. To a portly Italian man. The NES, uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System, is what you have the all those early canonical Mario Brothers games on, and Super Mario Brothers three, the third installment, is like a record breaking, world conquering success. And so Sega, the Genesis, is twice as powerful as the NES, sixteen bit processing cartridges versus eight bit, and they took aim at Nintendo early on with their slogan, "Genesis does what Nintendo don't," which is a great bit of marketing. I love that. But uh, up until this, up until the Sonic era, their main strategy had been just to port their arcade games over to the Genesis. And you know, we're not going to get too into the weeds with lingo, but porting means you take an existing game and move it from one platform to the other. So in this case, the big arcade cabinets uh, onto a home system. And they had previously, <laughs> currently residing in the Where Are They Now files, <laughs> Alex Kidd. Uh, was the initial Sega choice the internal Sega choice for a mascot um I don't remember anything about these yeah I'm so it, glad you said that I was not familiar with him at all um there were four of these games released from uh one two three four six from 86 to 90. and I guess if there are Alex kid stands out there we'll hear from him but he was discarded he was thrown away like yesterday's garbage <laughs> because he looked too much like Mario. Um, And Sega President Hayao Nakayama wanted a flagship character to compete with Mario. So he held an internal contest through the company, specifically aimed at American audiences. Which is, now we're getting into one of my favorite things, which is how Japanese people perceive and understand American culture. So Sonic, as a character, is a mix of Michael Jackson, (laughs) Felix the Cat, Mickey Mouse, and as you alluded to earlier... Bill Clinton. Obviously. Is it? When so, I mean, you hear that now. It's yeah. obvious that those are the things Completely. that went in the Sonic. <laughs> so, as part of this contest, uh, an animator named Naoto Oshima and programmer named Yuji Naka proposed a game based on a fast moving character rocketing through a tube because Naka had recently worked out a programming technique to get a sprite, which is a small animated character or not animated small character made up of, you know, individual Pixels. Pixels, yeah. To get a sprite moving at very high speeds along curved environments, which was a big, this is like a big breakthrough, because you think of early video games, it's all very squared off, like right? Like Mario's all the um, blocks and stuff, whereas, I mean, that's yeah. true,
3: I didn't even think of that till right now, if you play Sonic, it's all rings,
4: it's all loop-de-loops, it's all very rounded. And so this proposal was accepted, and a designer named Hirokazu yasuhiro was added to the dev team, and originally, they wanted a rabbit why did they want a rabbit, Jordan? So glad you asked. They wanted a rabbit because he would have prehensile ears to grasp and manipulate objects. This proved to be too complicated, perhaps obviously in hindsight. <laughs> it feels like if you're just crossing the bridge of getting curved things in your video game, the idea that you want a character to have prehensile ears to move things in the environment might have seemed like a bridge too far from the jump. Walk before anyway, you can run yeah exactly so instead they focused on this idea of a character rolling into a ball because they had this circular sprite thing going and they wanted to do an armadillo i like before that. settling on a hedgehog yeah 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 armadillo would probably seem pretty american because the whole like oh, know, southwest, everywhere in yeah. texas american southwest thing um <laughs> they were originally going to call this rabbit character uh feel the rabbit <laughs> Which is as you wrote, it's it, it slots so neatly into the Elmer Fudd, the Ride of the Valkyries, the Kill the Wabbit, Kill the <laughs> rabbit. so feel the rabbit. Uh, anyway, but because they knew a great idea when they had it and wanted to hang on to it, they recycled this for a game called Restar a few years later. Um, and Oshima was talking to Polygon, a gaming tech outlet, a, a writer for them named Michael McWhorter in 2018 he said, I planned a trip to New York while this discussion was going on internally. Sega said, we definitely want to see something like an old guy with a mustache. <laughs> sure. Uh, who would go on to become the game's bad guy. I wonder if they were trying to demonize Mario with that. Oh, yeah. The, the, the Dr.
3: Robotnik character, I think, came about as like a unflattering parody of Mario. You got the big, you know, they got the overalls, I think. And then you've got the big mustache. Yeah, it was that definitely a shot at
4: Mario cutthroat world of 90s video games they're vicious the anti-italian-american discrimination in here is outrageous uh we also want to see something spiky and we also want to see a dog-like character so this 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 is taking form.
3: Then there's this great story, maybe apocryphal, that Oshima and other designers went out to Central Park to do a little, like, real-world market testing, and they stopped people who were out for a stroll and asked them opinions on different character designs that they had. And this blue hedgehog character was the clear favorite. And according to Sega, it was because that it transcends race and gender. Which, sure, okay, I'll go with that. Um, They also wanted a character that children could easily draw, and Sonic definitely fit that bill. And apparently the hedgehog was chosen for practical reasons, too. You could even say evolutionary reasons. Hedgehogs can curl into a ball and roll away as a defensive tactic, which inspired
4: Sonic's spin dash attack. I curl into a ball (laughs) for defensive reasons, but you didn't see a video game character named after me. It's fetal position, man. <laughs> minor, minor professional setbacks send him into his patented fetal position where he rolls away and sits in the shower for 30 minutes, reflecting on his life choices. Uh, Oshima says that he just stuck Felix the Cat's head onto the body of Mickey Mouse to create Sonic, which sounds a bit reductive, but um, they then dyed him blue to match so, uh, the Sega logo, which, Sega... Initially, Sonic was a darker blue, but it turns out he blended too well in with the ocean backgrounds, and so they lightened him. And this is my favorite bit about this. We talked earlier about where Bill Clinton fits into this, and Oshima, I guess, in attempting to make Sonic's identity uniquely American, he drew inspiration from Bill Clinton who, and these are quotes, whose proactive attitude was supposedly reflected in Sonic's can-do attitude. The game is also has an environmental theme that was also a reflection on the then hot button topic of conservation and global warming in the 1990s. And now that we move into the sartorial aspect of the design, the buckled red shoes are an homage to Michael Jackson on the cover of 1987 bad, uh, bad record and the bad record. And they were made red and white partially because of Santa Claus who Oshiba had pegged as the most famous character in the world.
3: And also apparently so they could be seen at the high speeds in the game. They showed up better against the blue background. But Michael Jackson may have also provided more than just style inspo. There are conflicting reports as to whether Michael Jackson, who was apparently a huge Sonic fan, contributed to the series, uh, specifically the music for the series' third installment. And Oshima said that Michael Jackson's work was scrubbed after the allegations of sexual abuse against him in 1993. Uh, Although there are others who worked on the game who said that some of his music remains in the game. But there's actually another version of the story. There's also a version that says that Michael Jackson walked away from the project himself because he was frustrated with the limitations of the Sega Genesis sound chip, and he has to be uncredited in the final game. And it's interesting. Fans have noticed similarities between the end credits in Sonic 3 and Michael Jackson's song, Stranger in Moscow. And there's a great really really long read huffington post article from 2016 about this written by todd van lewing and it's it delves into all the minutia about whether or not michael jackson
4: actually did contribute music to the third sonic game well i think the thing we're missing over here is that there was a michael jackson video game uh, what called, Mo- called moonwalker on what Uh, Was it on Sega? Sega Sega had released it Yeah Um, So Moonwalker um, Was developed into an arcade game by Sega With Jackson's input They're based on the smooth criminal clip I would have thought the bad video I guess he's not fighting anybody in that is he? I guess he's breaking up the fight Oh hold on The stages are based on his different music videos As he rescues children from a drug dealer named Mr. Big Uh, (laughs) Making contact with Bubbles Michael's chimp turns him into a robot warrior. Captain repla- EO. <laughs> which replaces his melee dance attacks with missiles and laser beams. In the console version of the games, if you rescued a certain child first, a comet would fall from the sky. That would turn Michael into a robot. And um, I, this just has it in quotes, dance magic is apparently a big part of this this game, Moonwalker. So, uh, yeah, I guess Michael was already a known quantity at Sega. Um, That's
3: so interesting. Wow, I did not know that.
4: And now it's time for another segment of the podcast. We like to call Jordan Throws Alex a Bone about John Carpenter. John Carpenter, my favorite director of all time, loves video games. He loves people adapting his films now so that he can get a check and continue to get high and play video games and he loves Sonic. He even in one interview says, I even like the one where he turns into a werewolf, which is a late-era Sonic game called Sonic Unleashed and a universally panned entry in the series. But never you fear, Sega. John Carpenter's got your back. But while we're talking about the music to Sonic... Who actually did the music, Jordan? Masato Nakamura, who is a member of the J-pop band
3: Dreams Come True. And the interesting thing about Dreams Come True is that the band provided the music for Sleepless in Seattle with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan because we can't do a show without mentioning Tom Hanks.
4: Oh, man. That's our first Hanks. Do you think yep. we get to three? In this episode? I don't mm, know. Let's Maybe. Think. We'll, we'll try. That's Wonder one he, though. Yeah. All right. Ding. So this is wild, too. I did this earlier. Maybe you couldn't tell. Maybe my voice was just too beautiful. But um, the Sega—that sound bite took up an eighth of the space on that cartridge. That four-second jingle needed more storage space than entire levels of the game. So they cut stuff from the game gameplay to make the jingle. To make the—it's not even a jingle. It's a—it's a—it's a, it's a phrase. Whatever. <laughs> Great. Great decisions made at every level. Um, Sadly, one of these scenes that was lost to the ruthless uh, cutting blade of Sega's dev team was an end credit sequence where Sonic plays with a rock band made up of fellow animals, including a monkey on bass and an alligator on keys. And on the Master System version of this game, you can actually see uh, some cutting room floor footage of it where Sonic is seen singing into a microphone. But that is not the extent of Sonic's musical career. Jordan, tell us about it.
3: Yes, at one point Sonic was pitched as a rock star with a girlfriend named Madonna. In an early version of this game, Sonic had a girlfriend named Madonna who was like a human woman, not a hedgehog. And from the sketches I've seen, she very strongly resembles Jessica Rabbit with blonde hair, or perhaps the real Madonna. Could have gone with the real Madonna there. In an early incarnation of the game, Sonic was supposed to rescue her as opposed to rescuing woodland creatures. And there have been a few explanations as to why she was written out of the final game, in addition to needing to free up space so they could have this of a jingle. (laughs) Uh, One is that the content had to be, quote, softened for children in foreign countries, or the whole damsel in distress thing was too similar to Mario Brothers. Weird because... An early sketch of Sonic, he had these, like, really terrifying fangs. Like, he looked like, you know, Sonic, as we know him and love him, is a kind of a cuddly Mickey Mouse-type creature. But this early version, he looks very threatening. So I can see dropping the fangs to kind of
4: soften up his image. But, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. When the current Sonic movies run their course and we get the gritty (laughs) remake, the gritty reboot of, like, tortured Dark Sonic, he's going to have huge fangs and, like, a a (laughs) hot Jessica Rabbit girlfriend. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages.
5: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. But it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
1: There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger, Since You have Been Gone, and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts.
4: You also touched on this earlier. I'm not reading any of this anti-Italian-American discrimination. Okay.
3: (laughs) Um, yeah, I mentioned this earlier, the the rotund body of Sonic's nemesis, Dr. Robotnik, was developed back when Sega was trying to come up with a Mario competitor, and this egg-shaped man was drafted basically as an unflattering Mario parody, with a little bit of Teddy Roosevelt thrown in, I think. Um, and the early version, he was just this fat man in pajamas with a huge mustache, and they decided to go in a different direction for their main character, the hero, but they decided to keep this this rotund gentleman as the villain— because, I mean, it seems fitting for Sega to have a Mario analog as their villain, right? Um, (sighs) He's known in Japan as Eggman, but that name didn't really translate in the States, supposedly because the name Eggman was already in the popular lexicon, thanks to the Beatles
4: song, I Am the Walrus. And while we're on the topic of names... (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There's a persistent rumor that Sonic was originally going to be called Mr. Needle Mouse, (laughs) which sounds like... A faulty Towers character, more than anything, uh, or like one of these f***ing British towns where they would have sent the Rolling Stones mobile studio to record. Like, uh, Glenn Johns and the Rolling Stone mobile studio showed up on the town of Stratford upon needlemouse um, Yuji Naka explained years ago that this was just a translation error. They just called the character Mister Hedgehog. And the Japanese word for hedgehog is harinzenumi, uh, which literally translates to needle and mouse, which makes sense. A hedgehog is a mouse with needles. Uh, and according to a former head writer of the series, a guy by the name of Ken Penders, another early name was Ogilvy Maurice Hedgehog. So, kind of a wash. Ogilvy Maurice Needle Mouse, though, that's got a certain something to it.
3: That sounds like the, the birth name of some. Robert Plant. Yeah, oh, yeah. I was going to say Michael Kane, <laughs> but yeah. yeah.
4: Speaking of lore and backstories. And there's a lot of that. Yeah.
3: In fact, there's so much of that. There is a massive Sonic Bible that was created internally at Sega to basically create a bedrock to create all the levels and the stories of the game. And yeah, this internal document was dubbed the Sonic Bible, and it outlines Sonic's origin in extreme detail, and it was intended to be a reference for developers making future versions of the game, and some of it was actually used as fodder for the Sonic comic book series, too. Uh, and the Sonic Bible, It was again, it was never meant for publication, but a former Sonic employee actually talked about it in a Sonic retro web forum in 2009, and fans went nuts and asked him to scan it in, which he did. And he apparently sold copies of it on eBay, which I'm kind of blown away that the Sega legal team didn't sue him into oblivion for that, but there's copies, PDFs of it floating around online. Um, How many pages? It's over 30 pages, which is... Single space. so that, And that's quite impressive. And this Bible, it was revised many times. So like most religions, there are many different interpretations and versions of what is considered sonic <laughs> canon. And um, there's a guy by the name of Brian David Gilbert, who was on the Polygon YouTube channel. And he has a very interesting video about the sonic Bible and its different variations.
4: Um... Early interior feedback for this was not good. There's a guy who worked for Atari, and he founded the Sega Technical Institute, which is sort of their think tank. His name is Mark Cerny. Uh, He, incidentally, had a hand developing the PS4. He said in 2006 that the early feedback from higher-ups in the company included that the characters were unsalvageable, that is a quote, that this thing was, quote, a disaster, and my personal favorite, (laughs) quote procedures would be put in place to make sure that this sort of thing would never happen again, which is something I say to Jordan whenever we're done taping on these. Um, yeah. Well,
3: i had heard that the, the higher-ups were actually mostly concerned that the general public, at least overseas, wouldn't know what a hedgehog was because apparently there are no hedgehogs in the United States. Porcupine, yes. Hedgehog, no.
4: Is that true? Yeah. I didn't know hmm. that either, yeah. Weird. All right. Maybe some foresight on the part of uh, Sega. <clears throat> but then again, they made the Dreamcast. So <laughs> that's the only bit of video game insider. I just know that the Dreamcast was a flop. That's that's all I got for you. Uh, incidentally, moving on. There's a guy from Mattel named Tom Kalinsky who comes in to replace the uh, CEO of Sega America. And Kalinsky was brought in as part of the company's attempts to reverse their fortunes and beat Nintendo yeah exactly that's like sort of the log line of Sega at this point is beat Nintendo at all costs Um, Kalinsky makes this decision to package Sonic as the pack-in game. That's what when you buy a console, you get a game with it. So and it's usually a
3: crappy game. Like, it's usually yeah. one they don't mind giving away. So this guy suggesting to make Sonic their new marquee character the pack-in game was extremely controversial, to put it mildly. When he pitched this idea to the Japanese VP of Sega, this VP supposedly stood up from his chair, screamed, are you crazy? We make money selling software, and now you want to give away our best title? that he stood up kicked his chair and started to walk to the tour and then he turned around and sighed if you think that'll help us beat nintendo do it <laughs> so they gave away sonic to 15 million households and this gamble ultimately worked. This knocked Nintendo off the top spot and gave Sega the market majority of 65%. This really was like a David and Goliath story in the video game world because for every dollar that Sega had in its marketing budget, Nintendo had $15. So they really had to rely on guerrilla marketing tactics and they staged events at shopping malls where they had two identical 32 two-inch TVs side-by-side, side. one with the first 16-bit Super NES Mario games and the other was Sonic on a Sega Genesis, and they let the kids play and make up their own mind. It's like the, it's a video game version of the taste test. It's really weird that after all the research and development and all the time and money that went into this, Sonic's first appearance was not in Sonic 1, but
4: had sort of a soft opening in an arcade game. Yeah. Uh, so a few months before the game even comes out for home consoles, they teased, they, they, it was like the mid-credits scene in a Marvel movie. Um, there's a coin-operated game arcade game called rad mobile uh which is a first person racing game and you can actually see sonic dangling from the review mirror as like an air freshener or a little <laughs> toy uh and that came out in arcades in january 1991 almost um six months before sonic came out and this game may be most known to <laughs> viewers of a certain generation as the game that brendan frazier plays in encino man Uh, We mentioned earlier that Sonic has its roots in the then novel notion of this sprite moving around these loop-de-loops, but this is wild, man. This whole game was designed from the jump to be super fast and super frustrating. Jordan? Jordan?
3: Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, speed was the mantra for the developers working on Sonic, and the creator, Yuji Naka, apparently became fixated on this while playing Mario, because in the early days of video games, you couldn't save your progress, so you found yourself playing the first level or two over and over and over again, and he just wanted to speed through it to get back to where he was, and that gave him the drive to create a game that you could just plow through at an insane rate. And at the time of Sonic's release, he was the fastest moving video game character ever created. And it was even registered in the Guinness Book of World Records. And amazingly, there was an earlier version of Sonic that had him moving even faster. But the game gave Yuji Naka motion sickness.
4: (laughs) So they toned it down. That was Um, the upper threshold. They were like, well, it's finally making him physically ill. It's like the clockwork orange. They have him (laughs) like, his eyes are strapped open. He's like, faster! Faster! faster and they're like that's it shut it down we found the upper threshold (laughs) and in
3: the world of the game he can move fast if not faster than the speed of sound hence his name Mm -hmm. sonic and Mm -hmm. that is 768 miles an hour but according to the lore
4: of the game the thing that keeps him moving fast are his shoes uh this is my favorite thank you jordan for not turning this over to me i'm just gonna take this because it fits in with me dispositionally um sonic doesn't like left being alone with his thoughts as so many of us uh do don't and um if you ever sat the controller down and didn't pause and just kind of left the game idle he literally just jumps off the screen and saying i'm out of here and you have to start the game over (laughs) oh i wonder if there are any big uh Camus fans, the whether or not, yeah, wow, this is getting dark real quick. Um, moving on. Speaking of ways that Sonic, speaking of ways that Sonic speaking of ways of Sonic offs himself, Sonic can't swim, he can run across the surface of the water. Um, one but, of the many ways mm, he's like Jesus, yes, like the Christ. Uh, <laughs> And that is because Yuji Naka was under the mistaken impression that hedgehogs cannot swim. They actually can. They're actually quite agile in the water. And it's one of the challenges that's become baked into the franchise is that Sonic does not like water. So speaking of things that make the game difficult, other than Sonic's death drive and water, um, it's the speed of the thing, man. You got to get the the, the ring noise whenever I swear. (laughs) Uh, are you highlighting the phrase, the hard <laughs> is what makes it great? Yes. You're a monster. <laughs> uh, Much like baseball, re- the hard <laughs> is what makes Sonic great. <laughs> uh, there's, a, I guess, a video game critic? I don't know. That's a thing. Uh, writing in The Guardian in 2017, Keith Stewart noted that at the time, Sonic was a major departure from game design, calling it both a masterpiece and incorrect. Incorrect. <laughs> Which I love. An incorrect masterpiece. Uh, the, the pace of this game forced players to learn through repetition rather than observation. Oh. As the levels aren't designed to be seen or even understood in one playthrough. Yeah, you, you don't actually get a chance to sit with this stuff. It's actually designed to force you to do this as many times as possible. It's and muscle get it memory. Into your, yeah, exactly. Get it into your muscle memory. Because the second you slow down, Sonic kills himself. Um... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the game is obviously when it comes out, it's a smash, despite this difficulty level. And as with any video game, you start seeing record high scores. You start seeing these speed runs that are happening. One of the speed run is there's a player named Fozon who apparently beat the game in just under 15 minutes, 1459. That is insane. High scores, though. While we're talking about high scores, the best verifiable one that Jordan found for us was Michael Sroka of the united states who broke the record not that long ago actually um may 15th 2011 812,140 points but not without controversy yes record may yes it's record mayor sorry yes (laughs) marv albert over here yes (laughs) <laughs> There's an unconfirmed report out there that Sroka's record was broken in March of 2015 by Rui Sousa, Sousa with a score of 1,559,180 points.
3: That seems Good. suspect. That's doubling the nearest record breaker. Yeah. I, yeah, I I I question that.
4: Well, it's like did you ever see the um the King of Kong? No. Oh, man, that's an, that's one of the best little slice-of-life documentaries about these guys who try and beat the um, Donkey Kong high score or, like, the Pac-Man high score. And it gets into a whole thing where they... Um, <clears throat> if you're not playing on standardized... Like, if you're not playing on the same board, like, the actual program board of the console, your win is invalidated. So I do wonder if, if there's a way of standardizing that.
3: I mean, here's a, a question that I... Pre, pre-internet, when you were playing a video game cabinet in an arcade and they yes. would have the high scores, were those yes. high scores just for that cabinet? I would assume so. Or were they linked
4: into some kind of database? Well, Jordan, I'm so glad you asked. Um, Twin Galaxies is the name of this. So this is a uh, this is just a great mo- a movie. And we don't have time to get into everything about this movie because it basically follows these two guys, Steve Weeby and Billy Mitchell, who are both battling for the all-time record in the 1981 arcade version of donkey kong and the tertiary character in this is an organization called twin galaxies that is basically the ripley's the not i guess ripley's is bad they're more of the guinness they they are dedicated to tracking and standardizing high scores in video games mostly focused on the golden console age right
3: When would this have been? Like, what era were they, or or are they still? The
4: documentary came out in 2007. Oh, so this is still,
3: these are still, this is a. Yeah, people are still doing
4: this. But the thing is, is that this organization, Twin Galaxies, they send guys out to actually pull your machine apart and look at the circuit board on it to see if it's standard, if it's similar to the guy you're competing against. And I think in this one, um, they actually find out that uh, the one has been tampered. With. Uh. so that invalidates the scores and this whole thing incidentally watch that first of all watch this documentary it's a great wonderful little slice of life movie the drama has continued and i am not up on it but i believe it is still going so i would wonder about these high scores how they're verified if it's done on an emulator on like a home computer if it's done on a genesis what generation of cartridge cartridges what generation of console it is how it's standardized there's a whole world involved in this stuff so, oh,
3: that was very interesting. Wow. <laughs>
4: Eat your heart out. So, I mean,
3: it sounds like in the early days in the pre-internet when there were scores on video game cabinets at, you know, your your mall arcade or whatever, those were unique to that cabinet, but yeah. then there'd oh, be yeah, yeah, a, yeah. there'd be an organization that would actually go tally them all and have yeah. somewhere.
4: Uh wow, that is very interesting. Yeah, it's wild. I don't have a good segue for that. Speaking of a different kind of high score, the high score of filthy lucre. Sonic <laughs> was integral to Sega taking the majority of the home video game market share. They took it from Nintendo for the first time since 1985. Huge win for Sega. Genesis outsold SNES's 2 to 1 during the 1991 season. And the original Sonic is still the platform's best-selling title. Nintendo because you can't fight City Hall. Nintendo took back the record eventually. Very sad for those of us who love the underdog. <coughs>
3: We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment.
5: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail.
1: or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts.
4: <laughs> this is hilarious. I love all this drama between execs and the way that these guys are just different, like this cowboy Attitude these guys had toward each other at um, 1992 the Winter uh, Consumer Electronics Show. There's a Nintendo executive named Peter Maine who is there at the Nintendo booth, and he he was playing with their their Super Scope, which was that like shoulder-mounted light gun that you could use on the, and he pointed it at Sega's booth, and he said it this this is rather perfect for hedgehog hunting. <laughs> Like a Viceroy fox hunting. <laughs> yeah, in mean, like like, Jodhpurs. A yeah. <laughs> riding um, crop. Yeah. Sega's Al Nilsson at one point would claim that Sonic was more recognizable among 6 to 11-year-olds than Mickey Mouse. Wow. Um, which is funny. Be- it, it's just one of those, like, bits of marketing hyperbole because he's cited data from a company called Marketing Evaluations Incorporated, who would later decline to verify that. <laughs> so, <laughs> take that with a grain of salt. But, um... Regardless, there have been 70 million Sonic-related games sold across the world based on 70 different Sonic-related titles. So even if you're doing that extremely, like, math-for-dummies breakdown, that's a million copies of every Sonic game. It is obviously doesn't break down that way. But, man, good for Sonic. I love an underdog.
3: But despite all the success, Naka and Yashihara were both disappointed by their treatment from Sega... Uh, The corporation avoided crediting its game dev teams, partly out of fear that they'd be poached by other companies, and Yushinaka quit, eventually joining uh, the Sega Technical Institute, which, as you mentioned earlier, is basically like a think tank for Japanese and American developers, and uh, Yushinaka also defected there too, but before they left, out of revenge... Naka secretly added a list of all the names responsible for Sonic and put them on a black intro screen for the game, and the text was also in black, so you couldn't see it unless you had the cheat code, so that nerds could basically recognize other nerds, and I think that's beautiful.
4: What a milk toast form of revenge. I love that. But yeah, this was you said this is more common than people would might think.
3: Yeah, this is sort of a fairly standard practice for early Easter eggs. The first ever video game Easter egg was for the nineteen seventy-nine game Adventure for the Atari. 2600 when a disgruntled employee added his own name to a secret room so I guess there are quite a few like covert signatures on these old retro games over the years that was like a pretty standard way of like you know marking your territory even when the the bosses didn't want to actually give you real credit on like the box or the home screen
4: I love that it's like if a mixing or mastering engineer was like (laughs) I did this (laughs) it's just like slips into the mix of like your drum mix DJ Khaled effect yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah exactly it's like if Tom Dowd is recording all those (laughs) Ray Charles sides and like you get to like this like the emotional peak of a Ray Charles ballad and then just off in the drum mic you hear Tom Dowd recorded this (laughs) what a granular bit we're doing now (laughs) um Sonic's animated spin-off that was good that was good He spins, he rolls. You got to put the sonic suicide noise in there.
1: (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm out of here. here.
4: Uh, The animated spinoff actually has quite a pedigree. We mentioned Tom Kalinski earlier, who, much like every other executive in the history of the world, (laughs) his whole job was replicating success he had had at other jobs by doing the same thing over (laughs) again. He had been at Mattel. The animated He-Man series had juiced sales of the He-Man toy line. And so naturally, when he was at Sega, he pitched ABC an animated series based around Sonic. 65 episodes of this were produced, overseen by Ren and Stimpy director Kent Butterworth. And Sonic was voiced by Jaleel White, otherwise and indelibly known as Urkel on Family Matters. Uh, And moving into a considerably more three-dimensional medium, (laughs) that of rubber.
3: Yes, grander honors were still to come for Sonic. In November of 1993, Sonic the Hedgehog became the first video game character to have a balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, paving the way for the likes of Pikachu and Red from Angry Birds, but not Mario. Eat that, Nintendo. Oh, Italian-Americans
4: taking so many
3: (laughs) L's. Well, Mario might have dodged the bullet here because unfortunately the year that the sonic balloon was unveiled, <laughs> oh, yeah. it was blown into a lamppost and the thing popped and it <laughs> deflated and crashed to the ground like the footage of the Hindenburg and <laughs> resulting in two injuries, but thankfully no deaths. You know, Al Roker's on the TV. Oh, the
1: oh,
4: humanity. <laughs> um, <laughs> Adagio for strings <laughs> plays in the background. Da-na-na. It gets worse. Okay, uh, this continue. was this was the,
3: this was Thanksgiving 1993 when it when it had its catastrophic debut. It was repaired and flown again the following year in 1994 when the same thing happened. <laughs> uh, it was smooth sailing for a few more years, but then it hit yet another lamppost in 1997, the third time, uh, after which the balloon was retired. But there was a new balloon that was flown in 2011 for the character's 20th anniversary. And as far as I'm aware, that one didn't maim anybody. Um, and <laughs> Slowly deflating Sonic, <laughs> knocking over lampposts and marching bands that have flown in from Indianapolis. <laughs> Al Al Roker's single tear down his cheek. (laughs) Some baton twirlers are fleeing for cover. Oh, good Lord. Oh, we're bad people.
4: All right. (laughs) The Um, cast of Mamma Mia (laughs) (laughs) run from out front of Macy's. But from death to life, because there's a gene that has been named after Sonic. Called unimaginably the Sonic the Hedgehog gene Which encodes a protein called similarly unimaginably Sonic Hedgehog <laughs> uh, The function of this gene is to regulate organogenesis Organogenesis, right? Am I yeah, saying that Organogenesis, right? yeah Take that, we have a Who's our on-staff geneticist? Go, go to the judges? Uh, yeah uh, It controls the growth of limbs, digits, and the organization of the brain Now This is really nerdy I don't, I don't know shit about genes, Jordan, but I know that. But I know they what I like. <laughs> um, genes can be inhibited, right? That stops them from working. The inhibitor to the hedgehog gene signaling pathway is called Robotnikinin because he's the bad guy. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Anybody? Bueller? Uh, it was named by a scientist called Robert Riddle who was inspired when his wife brought home a video game magazine in the early 90s with a Sega ad in the back. And scientists refer to this by the slightly more professional-sounding acronym SHH, but it is believed to be able to repair damaged hair cells, which in theory means that Sonic the Hedgehog and his gene could be the cure for baldness, which would be his ultimate win over Robotnik, a famously bald ah. villain. Wow, yeah. See how I brought that one back,
3: tied it back. That was good. Yeah. Yeah, th- this game has given us so much, but it could also be blamed for some truly terrible things, namely the 90s run on animals with attitude games. <laughs> Despite the fact that Sonic wasn't particularly attitudinal, if that's a word, in the original game, <laughs> his success spurred a gold rush of imitators capitalizing on the quote, radical animal blueprint, including. Bubsy the Bobcat, yep. Gex the Gecko, yep. Dinosaur Radical Rex, yep. Bug the um the the Bug yep. and Rocky Rodent.
4: That one sounds fake. Yeah, I mean Rocky I, Raccoon, I guess, it has a precedent.
3: Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. The Crash Bandicoot dev team Naughty Dog consistently referenced Sonic as an influence, even referring to it as, quote, Sonic's ass game in early stages, owing to the fact that the game's sort of camera followed Bandicoot from behind. I guess that was a thing that really differentiated it from a lot of those other video games was that you did see it in a 360 view as opposed to yeah. I mean, Mario being the initial example of it just being flat Side 2D scroller. and yeah. then Sonic I guess it's also 2D, but for some reason, it, it, maybe yeah, the a, graphics is better. Yeah,
4: it's what they call a side-scroller. Yeah. I don't know enough about video games to know which... Would it have been Mario 64? Maybe it was one of the first 3D ones? I don't Might know. It doesn't yeah. matter. Folks, if you'd like to correct any of our video game knowledge or misnomers in here, please tweet at us using the hashtag Sonic's Ass Game. Uh, but you know what? Game respects game. Mario's creator, Shigeru Miyamoto, said in 1995, I think Sega succeeded in making a good, strong character. There are lots of games that try to imitate Mario, but Sega did especially well with Sonic. Despite his resemblance to Mario, there are some special points that make him different. The energy, for example... I don't know what that means. Make of that what you will. But he continued, Among Mario's imitations, Sonic is a good one. And they finally came together in a crossover Nintendo Wii game tied to the 2008 Beijing Olympics with the slightly unoriginal title Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. And if that is not a happy ending, what is? Isn't he also in... I think he's in Smash Brothers. I think, yeah, I think after that they made a a Smash Brothers game, too. Yes, yes, that's true. So, we're not going to get too much into the movies here because we're talking about the video game. But, we'd be remiss in our duties if we didn't talk about Teeth Gate. Uh, (laughs) When the Sonic the Hedgehog big budget live action adaptation dropped in, uh, what was this, 2019? Fans were in an uproar, mostly because of his teeth. However they redesigned, reimagined the character for the movie, he fell flat a number of ways. The first one was that his teeth were too big and looked too human, and there was this enormous outcry. Vulture has a great timeline of this that goes all the way back to June 2014, which I am not going to get into, but they put out a poster for this as a teaser in December 2018, and it immediately meets with fury. (laughs) People are just not happy with it. Moving into April 2019, a month later, the trailer comes out, and everyone is upset because Sonic has human teeth. Distressingly human (laughs) teeth. I don't know, man. Do you remember being online for this? People flipped out, and it took them about... Let's see. This came out. What did I just say? This came out in, yeah, April 2019, November of 2019, they release a new trailer. Bigger eyes, smaller teeth. (laughs) Here's
3: my question. That seems like a really quick turnaround time to completely redesign a character for an animated film. I know maybe in in computer animation, it's something that can be done. You know, it's not like in regular animation, traditional animation where you're going through fixing individual, you know, cells, but that seems quick. I almost wonder if like, you know, there's that conspiracy theory about new Coke. Have you
4: heard this? Oh yeah. That they did it. Well, go ahead.
3: Yeah. I think, I mean, stop me if I'm getting this wrong, that new Coke, they knew it was going to bomb, but they were going to stop using sugar and start using corn syrup instead in their classic formula. And so, the whole, we're going to make a new flavor. They knew it was going to meet without cry. And then when they said, oh, right, we're going to give you back your old flavor, it was going to be in everyone's mind. Like, no, this is the classic flavor. This is the original one, but it was slightly different. It was used with cheaper ingredients that did taste slightly different. That's why you get like Mexican Coke now is used with original sugar. And that's why that's like, you know, seen as mm-hmm. this kind of premium product. And there's this whole conspiracy theory that they knew new Coke was going to bomb. And it was just to like, Get people excited for the slightly crappier version of the product that they'd known forever. Is that am <laughs> I
4: roughly telling that story well, right? I, I, you're telling the story correct. I don't know that this was necessarily how the Sonic team did it. The, I don't know. The, that's
3: my theory. Maybe they were like, "Oh my god, we got to give people like."
4: Get people passionate about this by like screwing it up. So the producer of both of the movies, because they just put out a second one, a guy named Neil Moritz, uh, he gave an interview to a podcast called The Town with Matthew Baloney, And he basically said that we had an all hands on deck meeting the next morning at Paramount. It took them a day to be like, we f***ed up. Do that ring noise there. <laughs> yeah. It took them one day. And he said, we're going to take this character back to what is loved, and we need X amount of dollars to do this, and we need to delay the movie. And he says, and I have to say, Sega and Paramount said, okay, you're right. Which is, I don't know how many angry tweets they had to show Sega and Paramount, but God love them. They took away his creepy human teeth, and... uh Let's see how well... Let's see. Sonic the Hedgehog, original flavor, has 63% Tomato Mater, 93%. Audience score, domestic, 146 million. 355 million worldwide. Wow. So, folks, Wow. Sonic still has teeth. Creepy (laughs) or not. There's money to be squeezed out of that hedgehog still. Uh, well, this conversation has been idle for a while, so I'm out of here. That's
3: right. It is game over for us. Thank you so much for listening to our wildly digressive conversation about Sonic the Hedgehog. My name is Jordan Runtog.
4: And I'm Alex Seigel. Thank you for listening, folks. We, we've... <laughs> nope, I didn't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm Alec Teigel Folks, thank you so much for listening This has been Too Much Information We'll talk to you next time Will we? You'll hear us next time Why am I <laughs> sucking at this right now? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I'm very much enjoying it You're enjoying it Alright, alright uh, You sadist uh, You just gotta fade it out On Dajio for strings <laughs> With me fumbling for a kicker <laughs> Folks This has been Too Much Information Thank you for listening We will uh, catch you on the flippity-flop, swinging around the old oak tree. Just tie a yellow ribbon around the cellar door, and we'll see you at the teddy bear's picnic.
3: information was a production of iHeartRadio.
4: The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl,
3: with original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts.